Would you open God's precious holy word to Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. Reflecting upon the season in which we find ourselves, here is a great statement with regard to the emergence of the Christ of God, the incarnation of God the Son. Paul generally is writing here to the Galatians about the curse of the law. The Galatians had come under a a false teaching from Judaizers who were teaching them that uh, they couldn't really be Christians until they first obeyed the law, obedient to the law of Moses, which of course is a false doctrine. And so he writes to them to correct that. And in the course of the letter, he addresses the incarnation of the Christ of God here in this passage of scripture. I want to read it completely, then break it down in each section, and then come back and consider it in its complete context at the close of the message. But when the fullness of the time had come, when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Let's look at it in each of its sections and then consider how majestic and magnanimous the incarnation of the Christ is as God accommodated himself to human flesh. First of all, when the fullness of time came. The word fullness in the Greek text Pleroma, fullness. It means to be filled up, the total sum of. In other words, it was the fullness of the time that God intended to fill. It is the completion of time that God intended to fill. And at the completion of the time, he would send forth his son. The fullness of the time. Now let's look back. Okay, so what does it what does it what does it mean? It means that God sent his son at the appropriate moment. The word for time up there, chronon, uh, chronu, chronu, chronu from chronos. There are two words for time. In the Greek text, one is karos and one is chronos. Karos is hour, it's a definite hour. But chronos, we get our word chronology from that. In other words, the seasons had come upon themselves until the final one came and the sum total of it was completed. So 
everything that God intended to happen before his sending forth his son happened. And now the sending forth of his son would occur. When the fullness of the time came, God's people, the Jews, should have, could have, would have known that in the time of the, the virgin birth of Christ, it was the time that the Bible had designated. Here's how we know that. First of all, from Daniel chapter 9 and verse 24, 70 weeks of years have been decreed upon your people, upon the city of your sanctuary, to terminate the transgression and to end sin, to expiate iniquity, and to bring eternal righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy or prophet, and anoint the holy of holies. You shall know and understand that from the emergence of the word to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the prince, Messiah, shall be seven weeks or seven weeks of years. It speaks of sets of seven and it speaks of sets of seven years. And 62 weeks, so seven weeks plus 62 weeks, that's 69. It will be built again, the street and the wall, but in troubled times. And after the 62 weeks... So the first seven weeks or 49 years would pass, then the next 62, and they would go concurrently, go right one after the other. Messiah will be cut off, which means to be destroyed or even murdered. Messiah will be cut off, and he will have nothing. That is, at that moment, Messiah will not receive the kingdom and will not sit on the throne of David on planet Earth in Jerusalem at that time when he is murdered, when he's cut off. And the people of the coming prince will destroy the city and the sanctuary and his end will come about by the flood, uh, by flood and until the end of the war, desolations are determined. Now, you know, there's, there's a year's worth of preaching there, but our point here is to focus on the truth that at the close of 69 seven-year periods, at the end of it, the end of it would be identified by the murder of Messiah. It starts, if you look up here, it starts when the decree is given for the people to go back and rebuild Jerusalem. That's easily found out. The date is easily discovered in the scriptures. It's in Ezra chapter one. Cyrus issues a decree and the date is easily determined. And if you take the the lunar calendar uh, on which the biblical times in the Old Testament are built, It's easy to identify all the way to the end of it to when Messiah would be cut off. Now he would be cut off then when that prophecy is compared with others. He would be cut off as a man who would have been old enough as a man, as as Jews understood manhood, he would have been old enough to receive all that he could receive, but he would be cut off. So you take... manhood in the Jewish uh, culture started at the age of 30. I often think of how the Jews would not let young men read the Song of Solomon until they were 30. Everybody's going to rush home and read the Song of Solomon. It's juicy. It's good stuff. 
It's, you don't want to miss the Song of Solomon. But you couldn't read it until you were 30 years old, manhood. Now, you'd have to consider, okay, now I've got to take back the time to allow him to grow. So I go backwards in years to the time of when he would be born. So when Christ was born, it was generally the time frame that the Jews expected that the Messiah would be born. Now, the interesting thing about the, one of the interesting things about the preaching of Christ to the Jews is, is to correct their uh, misguided uh, theological persuasion that when Christ came the first time, he would immediately receive the kingdom. No, he came to redeem his own and give himself uh, as a sacrifice for his own. He had to do that the first time, then he would be cut off, murdered, he would be killed, slain. And then he'd come again. So here we are. People would understand the time frame. And this is what, this is what Paul references. The fullness of the seasons that would come. Of, of, the, of, of the epoch time. And there it would be. You can actually add, using the lunar calendar from the decree of Cyrus, Take those 400 and, see, well, 69 times 7, whatever that is. Those years all the way up, and it takes you to when the Messiah would be cut off somewhere around 32 AD. Very interesting. The people would have known. So here is the truth of the prophecy. Now, the prophecy is that it's the time for the people. Daniel remembers the prophecy of Jeremiah who said they'd only be enslaved for 70 years. So it's time for the people to go back home. But the people are sinful. And Daniel knows that they're not really prepared to be released from their in, enslavement and, and to go back to their land. And he prays for the people. Daniel prays for the people. Gabriel comes from heaven. The Lord dispatches Gabriel to send him and he said, you know, even before you spoke the words, I was headed your way with the answer because God knows your heart. And here's the answer. Seventy-seven year periods are determined upon Israel. Sixty-nine of them will pass right through. But then there will be a stoppage at the 69th and then the 70th will come later. That's the seven years of tribulation. That hadn't come yet upon God's people. That's determined for Israel. That's what he says here. Determined upon your people, your city, your sanctuary, your Jerusalem, and so forth. Now, I didn't write, I didn't put in here what he said about the 70th seven-year period because it's not germane to what we're speaking of here. We're talking about the birth of Christ, the physical birth of Jesus Christ. There was a time designated by God. There was a specific close of a season. After the seasons had passed, the seasons of time that God had determined for mankind would come to an end. And in the case of the Jews here from the time of the decree until the murder of Messiah, 69 seven-year periods would pass. So it gave the people a general time frame when the Christ of God would be born. This is what he says here. The fullness 
of the time came. It was time. We saw last time that he was born in Bethlehem. The, the Bible taught us prophetically he was born in Bethlehem. The Bible teaches us he comes from Judah and from the, from the seed of David. Uh, we know all kinds of things about the identity of Christ, where he's born, about when he's going to be born, uh, into what tribe he is to be born. But uh, we're told even more than that in Scripture. That carries us to the next phrase. God sent forth his son. God did not create his son. God sent forth his son. We saw last time. I put it up here again, but Micah 5 from last week. One shall emerge for me to be ruler over, over Israel, and he would be born in Bethlehem. And then in Psalm 2, there are so many, but I just picked out two. I will tell of the decree. Yahweh said to me, you are my son. This day I have begotten you, request of me, and I will make nations your inheritance. And the ends of the earth, your possession. He came forth to be a ruler over Israel and to be the king of kings. The Lord of lords, the possessor of of the earth in the revelation there are seven there's a seven sealed document and we watch in the early part of the revelation as each one of those seven seals are broken and we learn that it's it's like a jewish title deed and this would be the title deed to the earth sealed seven times means it's completely sealed on one side of the Jewish deed would have been a description of, of that which was lost. A piece of land, a parcel of land. And you think of the, uh, the year of Jubilee when it would be restored, all that. On one side is a description of the property and to whom it originally and rightfully should belong. To whom it should belong. On the other side was how it was lost. This is what you're supposed to have, but you lost it because of this. Now, here comes one to fulfill the terms. Kinsman, redeemer. Here comes one to fulfill the terms that are required to be fulfilled so that the rightful owner can take possession. Those Seven seals are then thus broken, which introduces an era of the wrath of God on planet earth for seven years. Starts out with those seven seals. It's because the nations belong to the Christ of God. We read in the millennial kingdom, for example, and even in the new heaven and the earth, kings of nations bring their honor from their nations in worship. To the great king, the king of kings. God sent forth his son to be born in Bethlehem, to be born in a particular time frame. And he would come and be the ancient of days. He would be his origin from old, from days of eternity. He's eternal. But he accommodates himself to human flesh, the incarnation 
of God the Son. And he is God the Son who receives from his Father the nations as inheritance, the ends of the earth as his possession. God sent forth his Son, born of woman. Now, in the case of an indefinite article in the Greek text, you can either use it or not use it. The definite article is not there, so it, it's either used without the indefinite article or used with it. Born of woman, you could say. Genesis 3, you know, here we are, original sin, mankind is fallen. And everything that will proceed forth from Adam and Eve is cursed fallen with an evil nature, hopeless and helpless. Until this prophecy is given in Genesis 3.15, there is absolutely no hope, nothing but death, nothing but erasure from existence, nothing but punishment that will last and last and last. That's what the first Adam gives to us. We are born in the flesh to our mamas and our daddies because we come into the race of Adam, but we are born with a fallen nature and we are helpless unless God in his grace intervenes in our behalf. So here's the, listen, before he told the man that he would have to work by the sweat of his brow, before he told the woman that she would travail in childbirth, before any shadow of judgment comes Upon our race, God promises a redeemer, a savior. And I shall place hatred between you and between the woman. He's speaking to the serpent. Between your seed and between her seed. He will crush your head and you will bite his heel. You will injure him, but he will destroy you. Now that's the first prophecy of the savior of Adam's race. That's the first one. Look at this. The seed of woman between your seed and between her. The woman doesn't carry the seed. The man carries the seed. How could this be? Here it is in Isaiah 7. Therefore Adonai of his own shall give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive. God divinely provides seed for her womb. And she shall bear a son, and she shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. What a profound thought. Yes, it, the Christ of God comes forth from the womb of a woman, but the womb of the woman is divinely prepared as a virgin to give to the world According to the purpose and plan of God, God the Son, the virgin-born Christ, born of woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law. Now, I'll tell you, that didn't come out right. That's supposed to be Isaiah 59, 20. Somewhere between my computer 
and your computer. <laughs> no, I don't, know. I don't know what I did wrong. That's the, what is that, the seventh mistake this year? Good grief, they're piling up on me right in December. <laughs> I'm gonna reach my quota if I'm not careful. All right, born under the law. Let me tell you, I'm a dispensationalist because really that's the only thing that makes sense in my view that lines up with the word of God. Now look what he says, born under the law. So there's this time of, of the law, but the law is God's perfect standard for humanity. And so the law is the standard that will be applied in the final judgment. Really? Broke the, we've all broken the law and we continue to break it, but we have, a, we have a savior who redeemed us from it and then an advocate who is our savior who argues our case constantly, forever in heaven. My intercessor, my lawyer, my high priest, the Christ of God, he ever lives, Hebrews 7 says, to make intercession for us. That's his job today. The, but there's a curse, this law, the Ten Commandments. Boy, we could, we could spend a long time talking about how we've broken the commandments. Well, I'll tell you what, you know, you could, the, the question could be, I don't want you to, well, you can't answer the question. Who among us, for example, has, has ever dishonored our parents in any way? All of us. Who of us have ever won? I mean, in all of our lives, from the time we were born until we died, how many of us have ever wanted something that the other guy had? Well, you start out that way. You know, the bigger baby in the crib gets the stuff. So, so Bear false witness. You know, you can say something about somebody, think that it's right, but it'd be wrong. You've borne false witness. I don't care if you're ignorant of it or not. Ignorance doesn't matter when it comes to breaking the law. So let's look at this. Isaiah 59, 20 says, and the redeemer shall come to Zion and those who repent of transgression in Jacob, says Yahweh. Huh. Eighth mistake. Good grief. That's supposed to say Job 19 and verse 25. I'm just going to quit. Uh, but I know, listen, Job, according to many, many, many scholars, was the earliest written of the books of the Bible, chronologically. First one, earliest one written. So here's Job, and it's interesting. If, and I believe that it's true. I've done a lot of study on it. The first, the earliest, the earliest inspired word that comes into the heart of a man is about a guy who is suffering and he doesn't know why he, say, he seems like he's suffering. And he's the most righteous man in the world, the Lord said. And he had been blessed by God. He was rich. And you know the story of Job. He fell into all kinds of problems Satan demand, just let me at him. You can do anything you want to to him, but kill him. And I'm kind of like that comedian. 
He killed everybody around him but his wife. How'd that work out for him? Why don't you curse God and die? She said to him. Well, he said, I know. We're talking probably pre-Abraham. I know that my goel, goel, my kinsman redeemer lives. He's attached and connected to me and he has the means by which to redeem me. I know that my redeemer lives and the last on the earth, he will endure. Now that carries us back in Galatians to chapter three. I didn't have enough space here. I do have it sort of translated a little bit. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Having become a curse for us, for it has been written, cursed is everyone hanging on a tree so that the Gentiles might come into the blessing of Abraham in Jesus Christ so that the promise of the spirit we might receive through faith. Christ came under the fullness of the curse of the law. Now, here's why that's important. No one in human history, in the human race, nobody from Adam until whatever baby is right now being born somewhere has ever lived perfectly and thus perfectly obeyed the law. Nobody, not one except Jesus. Virgin born, the book of Hebrews makes an interesting Note that talks about how he participated. He took part in the Greek text. It's it's telling us that he took part, but not all of who Adam was. He took the flesh, but he didn't take the sin nature because he was virgin born. he, He carried sinless blood in his life so that when his blood was spilled, he's the only one uniquely qualified in all of the human history to provide himself as a perfect sacrifice for all the rest who are in him. That's Christ. So, born under the law, he was under its curse and he hung on a tree. That comes from Deuteronomy. And so now we can receive the blessing and the promise given to those who are in faith, born under the law so that he might redeem those who were under the law. Here's an interesting thought. Now there is a general and universal declaration that the race of Adam has fallen. God gives the law to reveal to us his standard of human perfection. And in revealing that, he also reveals to us we can't accomplish that perfection. We can't obey. Just those 10 things. We can't, we can't do it. It's not in us to do it. Just for 10 commandments and then for chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter, God then gives provision on how people can be forgiven because he knows nobody's going to keep the law. There are all these sacrifices and 
these, these things that are given by declaration and mandate from heaven because people can't keep the law. And they establish themselves as, a, as an illustration in their worship of Yahweh at the tabernacle and then the temple, spotless lamb, bullock, whatever, that would be sacrificed because of our inability. We can't do it. And it was just a, it was just a coloring book. All of that was just an illustration, an example of the Lamb of God who would come and take away the sin of the world. Now, he has redeemed his own. That's what he came to do. He was born under the law, but there's a difference between Jesus and everybody else. He perfectly obeyed the law. So when he dies, he's not dying for his sin. He's dying for another's sin. He's a vicarious offering. He is a substitute. He is an atonement for sin. And so our, our chastisement and all that was laid on him. And it pleased Yahweh. The Lord was pleased to see him on that cross and receive the payment for the sins of his own. He paid for my sin. He didn't deserve it. I deserved it. But he took it so that I won't have to. That's the atonement of Christ. Born under the law met every specification of the law. And he put the law away within himself. He did away with it within himself so that he might redeem those who were under the law. Now let me say this. It's an interesting thing. Let me sure you understand how I say this. You have to understand and in a sense receive the law and its penalty in order to be saved. You understand what I'm saying? You're guilty of being a sinner. You're specifically identified in your sins in the law of Moses. Christ, not even in his thoughts, ever strayed or disobeyed, strayed from or, or disobeyed the law it was given, as it was given. He had every right to demand entry into heaven based on his goodness. He gave his goodness away to me. If you're in Christ, he gave it away to you. When God the Father looks at me, he sees that all that has been wrong with me has been covered in the righteousness of Christ and that's all the Father will see. The righteousness of Christ in me. This little child, born of a virgin, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law. Cursed, a sinner. The Bible says that Christ came into the world to save sinners. How can you get saved? First, by identifying yourself as a sinner. Jesus, I didn't come to call the righteous to repentance. 
Folks who already think they're righteous don't see any need for repentance. That's an awful state to be in, self-righteousness. That's a damnable state to be in, self-righteousness. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I gladly flee into the arms of Christ, identifying myself as a sinner in need of a savior. I've broken the law. You've broken the law. Everyone has broken the law, but Christ. And he became our redeemer. That we might receive the adoption as sons. This is such a unique, you should treasure this moment. That is my ninth mistake. That is verse five and not verse four. I've had a bad week. Somebody hadn't been praying for me. But I got the scripture right. See, verses and chapters, they're not divinely inspired anyway. That's a man-made thing. That we might receive the adoption as sons, sonship. It's an interesting concept. It's a truth. It's a principle of scripture. You are automatically in the race of Adam a slave to sin. Whether you believe it or not doesn't matter. You're enslaved in your fallen nature to sin. Things proceed out of your heart. As long as you're in a fallen state, those things will manifest themselves in your behavior. And there is no limit to the depth of depravity to which you may fall in the fallenness of your nature. There's no way, there's no way to describe how low you can get. Unchecked sin in your life, no way. You, you can look at the worst, nastiest sinner in the world, but for the grace of God, there go I. Was it uh, uh, Dwight L. Moody who said that? When he saw that poor wretch of a man lying in his own Stuff in a gutter. So then, when we are saved, there there are two metaphorical things here at work. One is to be born again. The other is to be adopted into sonship. Automatically, we are slaves to sin. And it's going to work itself out in you if you're unsaved. But redeemed in Christ, we are, we receive, Paul writes into, to the Romans, he said, we receive the spirit of adoption. Now here's what he's talking about. We have, as slaves of sin, we have no rights before God. We have no relationship to God. We have nothing. We're just a slave Worth nothing more than to be cast away, thrown away at any moment in time. We're worthless. But adoption in the Roman culture and and to an extent in the Jewish culture as well to an an extent. There are two identifications of, of a human. You're either a child or you're an adult. One or the other. 
to receive adoption is to receive, is to have all your debts canceled in, in a biblical culture. It's to have all of your debts canceled. It is to give you a full inheritance in the household of the father who has adopted you. And now you are no longer a slave. But you, an, you are an heir of the household of the father. Now to take that a little further, we move from being slaves to sin to joyfully becoming slaves of Christ. But in addition to that, we're joint heirs with Christ. And we're in the household of the Father. And so therein also comes the, the, the biblical principle of rebirth, regeneration. We're born again. We were spiritually dead, therefore there was nothing to us. God resurrects the spirit in our salvation and saves us, gives us the gift of, of repentance and confession and sends to us the effectual call that we cannot deny and he draws us to himself. All that the Father gives to me, Christ said in John 6, will come to me. And all that come to me, I will in no wise cast out. The adoption as sons. All of this because Christ came forth in the incarnation from God the Father. So now let's go back to where we started. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, being born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. Eternally, eternally in the household of God. Eternally in the family of God because Christ came for us. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and he came into this world to save sinners. And I would identify as Paul did and add to that of whom I am chief. Perhaps God is calling you to be saved today. In just a moment, we'll pray our benediction. And we'll be dismissed from this room, but there are deacons and their wives just across the hall, standing in the doorway of those rooms. As you exit, you'll see them. You are invited, as the Lord calls you into his salvation, step into those rooms on the way out. Let those deacons and their wives pray with you. Talk to you about the Lord's salvation. Maybe you would, as a Christian, come to be a part of the family here at Shiloh. They're prepared to talk with you about that as well. For now, let's all stand and we'll be dismissed in prayer.